Hello, and thank you for listening to the Vineyard Church Springbrook podcast of Vineyard Church right here in Alcoa, Tennessee. If you haven't already, you can check out our website for more information about our church or find our audio archive with all of our previous messages at www.vineyardchurch.us. You can also subscribe on Apple or Google Podcasts. Now, let's hear this week's message. Join me in reading the scripture. Um, We will be in Mark chapter 11. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Very Palm Sunday reading. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethpage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and, it will, and we'll return it soon. The two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street, tied outside the front door. As they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, What are you doing untying that colt? They said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. Then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. Many in the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut in the fields. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Praise God. Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessings on the coming kingdom of our ancestor David. Praise God in the highest heaven. So Jesus came to Jerusalem, and he went to the temple. And after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. This is the gospel of Christ. Thanks be to God. You guys are noticing now why we do a prepared video now every week. It's because giving me and Lindsay a mic with unprepared words is the most dangerous thing that can happen on a Sunday. Because here's the deal. We're going to try to be funny. And sometimes we're going to be really funny and those are hi-fi moments. Other times you guys don't laugh and it's like, crap. (laughs) And then the other times... um, We make a joke, and it teeters on wildly inappropriate. (laughs) And so so whenever I saw that video not work, I was like, oh, no, (laughs) because I know the feeling. So um, welcome to Palm Sunday. Um, Let's pray real quick. Jesus, we love you. We just turn our attention to you right now, whatever you would have to speak to us today. I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts, Lord, words of encouragement. Father, places where we need to be loosed from, I pray that you would lose strongholds in this place this morning, that this morning you would allow us to see you anew. And God, I pray that we would be able to experience you anew this morning. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come, manifest yourself amongst us. And we love you. Amen. Um, As we start this week of Holy Week, I want us to go on a little bit of a journey together today. Um, This isn't like an inspirational sermon. It's a journey. And we're going together today. um, Because I think Holy Week offers us, the Church of Jesus, a week in in which we can reflect and realign our life to the story of God. Um, In church 
tradition alludes to this all throughout this week, right? We call it Passion Week. Then we have Palm Sunday. Then we have Monday Thursday. Then we have Good Friday. Then we have Holy Saturday. And then we have Easter. We make up something for every day of a week this week. And it's because the church believes there's something special about this week that not only forms our, our Christianity, but it forms the whole thing. It forms us inside and out. And so this week, I want to challenge you to consider how the story of God informs and organizes your life and mine. And at the beginning of Holy Week, we see Jesus moving with purpose and intent towards this destiny that if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you are very familiar with. And if you haven't been a Christian for a while, let me just say that this is the beginning of Jesus' walk towards the cross where he will be crucified. And spoiler alert, be raised by the power of God in three days. This may be what Lindsay is preaching next week. I don't know. <laughs> She's savage and unpredictable, right? She already gave you, honestly, the most giving sermon she gave you, and it was a joke. Um, so she may do that next week. She may give you that treatise on hell that we've all been waiting for. Um, or she may go through Romans 9 and just have a day with predestination and free will. You never know around here. I'm just kidding. You always know that if there's a chance to celebrate, she's going to do it. Um, um, and, so, and, and, and so this is the week that we just come and we celebrate what Jesus has done for us. And the story about Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, if you're just reading Scripture without any context, just seems honestly sometimes like a small, insignificant story. I typically read this as Jesus going in on this colt, palm branches, and then going into the temple and turning around like, cool, what in the world does that mean for me? What does that mean for my life? Yet, if you had been living in this moment, this is actually one of the most wildest and most religious, social, and political actions of Jesus' life. It's a weird moment by any context of Jesus' life up to this time. Or, or um, if I were to say the wildest moment of Jesus' life, most of you might think it was when he walked on water or, you know, that weird moment when he spit on mud and put it in a guy's eyes and told him to go washed and he was healed of blindness. That's a wild story. Or maybe what we see after this story when Jesus walks into the temple, flips over tables and declares, it is written, my house will be a house of prayer and you have made it a den of thieves. Like that's an explosive moment. Um, but this entry into Jerusalem is actually a more wild and in-your-face moment than at any moment in Jesus' ministry. It's weird because Jesus would heal people and say, shh, don't tell anyone. Don't say it was me. Don't let them know, and they would go tell everyone. Um, and here, Jesus plans this out in detail. And not only that, for the first time in Jesus' life, we see him receiving acclaim that he norm, normally ran from. People are getting palm trees and waving it at him. And, and Jesus wouldn't even respond to that type of thing up to this time in his ministry. It's completely different from at any other point in his life. And so first I want to point out the political and social engagement in this that is just explosive. And so if you lived around that time, you would know in, in anticipation of Passover the Roman government was known for making a statement. 
Pilate would lead a military procession with all the pageantry and military power on display in their mission to reinforce their might amongst the people that were gathering through this same gate that Jesus was riding this colt through. A reminder to not mess with Caesar and his kingdom, behave this weekend or else. And so they would have this big pageantry that would go on. And then here we have Jesus and his disciples approaching from an opposite direction. Pilate on a war horse, Jesus on a young donkey. And not just a donkey, but a young donkey, but a colt. It's possible he had to pick up his feet from his feet not dragging the ground as he rode. One process in Pilate's was a triumphal entry. Jesus' entry was anything but that. It was almost anti-triumphal, almost a comedic spoof on the powers that be. Marcus Borg and John Crossan claimed that Jesus' entry was a pre-arranged political and theological statement that countered Pilate's. They say the meaning of the demonstration was clear to all those who observed it because it used the symbolism from Zechariah in the Jewish Bible. It is implicit in Mark's telling and quite implicit in Matthew's. Zechariah said that a king would be coming into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, humble and riding a colt, the foal of an ass. Pilate's procession embodied the power, glory, and violence of the empire of Caesar who claimed to be the Son of God, Savior, and Lord. Jesus' entry was about a different type of kingdom, his upside-down kingdom, the kingdom of God, a kingdom that is upside-down, a kingdom in which power looks completely different. And before we talk about power and what that looks like in God's kingdom, Jesus made another power move here. He didn't just make a statement toward the social and political crowd. He also made a religious one. Scripture says, so Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple After looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. Then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Let's understand this about the the temple in Jerusalem, which is the center of Jewish worship. Um, Gerald West, a professor of religion and theology at the University of South Africa, has this to say about it. The temple was not a religious institution only. First, the temple ordered each person's status in the social order. The outer walls of the temple identified the holy people, Israel, setting his people aside from all others. Within the temple, there were separate courts for women, men, priests, and the holy of holies where only the high priest entered. Significantly, the sick, the maimed, the mutilated, mentally and physically disabled, and unclean women were excluded from temple worship. Then the temple ordered the economic life of Israel, In fact, groups that were hostile to the temple focused on the economic dimensions of the temple system. They saw a corrected temple mainly because it compromised for the sake of riches and piled up money and wealth, plundering people by taking their lands. That's what the temple did. And as Jesus approached the city of Jerusalem, surrounded by those who followed him who were largely peasants, he was approaching the forces of domination of a domination system that oppressed Israel and indeed much of the known world and the center of the religious system that was in collaboration with them. And I don't think that I should relift on what political power and religion looks like. I think you guys have seen that over the last few years. It's messy and ugly. And Jesus walks in, takes a look at it, and says, let's go to Bethpage. 
ending his anti-triumphal entry. I mean, the equivalent to this moment would be people giving you a claim. You're walking down the red carpet. It's awesome. Everything's great. And there's this gala, gala banquet you're going to. It's all about you. You walk in. You take a look. And you're like, let's go to McDonald's. <laughs> like, oh, cool. We're leaving now. Right? And, and, and you have to understand, to these people who were giving Jesus a claim that that he just, he wasn't the God that was going to take away the sins of the world. He was this warrior king that was going to restore the throne that Jerusalem was finally going to be back to being the apex of the world in this moment. And what they saw absolutely confused them. Why would the warrior king who's supposed to restore everything look at his throne and say, let's go over to the next town? After this triumphal entry that they built up so much, That's the moment they were living in. Now, this is a triumphal entry for us because he is the Savior. He came to take away the sins of the world. And when we normally preach this, we preach it with pageantry and power. But for them, that wasn't this moment. It was a moment of confusion of why the warrior king just wanted to go to the next town in this significant moment. Um, And this first highly symbolic act, according to Mark's timeline, was followed by the cleansing of the temple, when Jesus knocked over the tables, a one-two punch directed at the systems that oppress God's people. So we not only see the political system in play, but the religious systems that normally excludes and gains from the disadvantage. Jesus was sending a message to his followers that God's kingdom is upside down to the powers of the world, even though this moment flew over their heads, much, much like it does ours. In this passing week, Jesus is going to show us how the nature of how power works in God's kingdom. When they come to arrest him, he's going to submit to the powers that be and go. When they accuse Jesus falsely of blasphemy towards God and put him on trial, he's going to remain silent. They're going to mock him by giving him a crown of thorns. They're going to send him to receive 39 lasses to his back. And eventually believe that is not enough and send him to a gruesome death on the cross in which he will die and only to be raised by the power of God and three days later as he said he would. Jesus, God in the flesh, showed us how power in the kingdom works. It's not like the power of the world. In Colossians chapter 2, 13 through 15, it says, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He had taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Now listen to this. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Power in God's kingdom is selfless and sacrificial, but not selfless and sacrificial for the sake of nothing, not for the sake of riches like the temple, not for the sake of selfish glory like the Roman Empire, and we sometimes say in our own religious tradition that God did it for his glory, but that would be kind of like what the religious would do for their glory, but he, he did it for the sake of others. For you and for me. 
for the abused and used by power, and even for those who used and abused power. Jesus models this for us. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 says, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Equal with God. But he didn't use it to his own advantage. God doesn't pursue, doesn't use power to overcome. He doesn't use his Godhead to overcome those power forces in the world. He doesn't send the angels to come get him out. He just doesn't take over. He submits to them. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. So there is something about this week in the church that the church has always thought is supposed to form our essential thinking and formation as human beings. And this is why I read Philippians 2 there. And what Philippians 2 is trying to say to us is that Jesus' spirituality is the premier example for Christians. Now, I don't know about you, but I have my favorites. Um, Jordan Sang is my favorite spirituality on Monday mornings. For you, it may be John Mark Comer. If you're Lindsay, it's Adam Russell in Kentucky. Or maybe Dallas Willard or Richard Foster or, or Henry Nowen and all these great people. But what the Bible says is that Jesus and his spirituality is the premier example for us as Christians. That Jesus didn't exploit his status or power, but rather emptied himself for the sake of others in humble obedience to his Father. Now, real quick, I want to ask you a question. I'm not trying to be funny or smart here, so please don't take it that way. And, like, honestly, ask yourself this question. This is a question I have to ask myself a lot of times, and that is, do you think Jesus is smart? Like, really, do, do, do you think he knows what he's talking about? Do you think Jesus is even at all competent? The reason why that is important because of this, if you notice Philippians 2.5, it starts, it says, in your relationships with one another. So we're back here to the essential, not political or religious, but a social dimension of the gospel. And it is the essential social dimension of our own formation as Christians. You don't learn to be formed to patience by picking up a book on patience. I wish it worked that way. Um, you, you learn to be patient by being present, aware, and engaged in your actual social sphere. That is where you learn patience, generosity, self-sacrifice, and selfless love. So when Philippians 2 says, in your relationships with one another... Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. When it says that he didn't claim special privileges, but instead he lived a selfless and obedient life, and then died a selfless and obedient death, that is supposed to be how we form ourselves to Jesus' example in our social sphere. That's what power in Jesus' upside-down kingdom looks like. Now, it's not this mystical, fantasy experience. Um, and what I mean by that is it doesn't have an... It doesn't happen in exclusion to others. Believe me, guys, I, I, I wish I could sow and practice self-sacrifice and 
and, and loving others above myself in my room alone with my dogs all by myself. Give me that all day long. I will love my dog Stella and Scout all day long. Um, but that's not how it works in the kingdom of God. No one is able going to be able to practice or see selflessness in a room all by myself. And it is this example that this week invites us to form ourselves to. God and for the sake of others. It's this example of Jesus. And a woman by the name of Diana Bueller Vass, a Christian historian, shows us how the early Christians did, did this. He says, the early community that followed Jesus was a community of praxis. Jesus' followers did not just sit around camp, uh, the campfire and listen to lectures on Christian theology. They listened to stories that taught them how to act towards one another and what to do in the world. They healed people, offered hospitality, prayed together, challenged traditional practices and rituals, ministered to the sick, comforted the grieving, fasted, and forgave. These actions induced wonder, gave them courage, empowered hope, and opened up a new vision of God. By doing things together, they began to see differently. She goes on to say, it is profoundly important to grasp this. Jesus and his followers were poor. The vast majority, majority of them were politically and religiously oppressed. There was little reason for them to hope for a better world, that the Romans would just let them be, or that the next ruler would change things. They were victims of one of history's most vicious empires. They lived in other hopeless circumstances. Jesus did not just tell them to have faith. He pushed them into the world to practice faith. The disciples did not hope the world would change. They changed it. And in doing so, they changed themselves. Now, as we end here, I, I, I want to say a few things because I know what a message like this sounds like. And I know you guys, I've walked with you guys, I've heard your stories of where you guys have come out of and where, and where you're at now and you're leaning into more freedom. But we can't deny the fact that Jesus says a fully alive life is a life that says to lay down your life for your friend. Jesus said that those that lose their life will find it and those that keep their life will lose it. Jesus' main call is to practice his example, which is to follow him in laying down our lives to God for the sake of others and modeling that after the life of Jesus that we see in this week. Now, I know what that sounds like. Oh, it's that hard lay down your life thing again, and I got to get rid of my money, and I have to do this and that. I, I know where some of you have been, but... But, but I want to say this to you. The reason why Jesus was able to do that, why he was able to lay down his life, being the son of God, was because he already had everything. He knew who he was before the father, loved, holy, and blameless in God's sight. He had this relationship with his father. His father loved him. He had every spiritual blessing as the son of God. He didn't have to look at people and try to make himself better. He didn't have to fight for his reputation. He knew who he was before the Father. And in Ephesians chapter 1, it says this towards us. And you being given every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And Colossians 1, that we were big on all last year, right? That we are holy and blameless in his sight. We too have been given everything. 
When Jesus went to the cross and died and sacrificed and sacrificed himself for our sins, in return, we gained everything Christ had. You and I have nothing to lose this morning in Christ Jesus. We have no reputation that we have to defend. We have no place of honor or anything we have to fight for because we already have it in Jesus. And so we can lift one another up. We can prefer others before ourselves. We can love one another, not being jealous or envy or full of strife because we have all been given everything in Christ Jesus. There's no longer any room to fight in that way towards one another. And this is why Jesus could live the fully alive life. He knew what he had. And the reason why we sometimes don't live that life is because we've been told lies about what we have. And the truth is we've been given everything in Christ Jesus. And so it's easy for us to say we can lay down this momentary little life we have and live it for God and the sake of others because we've been given everything in Jesus. And that's the truth. That's why laying down your life, like, it isn't, like, it isn't let me tell you, in practice, it's hard, I know. It takes a daily death and a daily formation to the life of Jesus. I know this because here's the truth, guys. If I don't get what I want to eat for dinner, I'm always kind of cranky. I want what I want for dinner. And if somebody suggests anything else, or like I come home and my wife's been a sweet, nice wife, and she's made me this dinner, but it's not what I wanted, inside me, sometimes I'm like, that's not what I want. I had this in mind, that's what I want. And so then I have to be like, but Chad, Jesus calls you to love your wife and that she was kind and Christ-like and did this, but there's still that part of me that wants to take up my own life in every situation and have my way. And even as a church leader, like most of us, you know, I haven't watched them, but if you read and watch what happened with Hillsong or you listen to the Mars Hill podcast, you know about power and how power abuses things. And let me tell you, as a church leader, you know how you get there. As a pastor, I know how they get there because you feel the tension to go that way and a model and a form that puts you on the stage. I get it. I get why they get there. And so I find myself always having to look at this thing of Christ, that Christ knew who he was. He's been given everything in the Father, and Jesus has thus given all that to me. And so I live from that place in the gospel and identity and grace. And that's where I live from. That's where I work from every day. I don't work from a place of lack. I don't live from a place of lack. I've been given everything. And that's how you and I lay down our lives. That's how we follow the example of Christ. And so as we end here today, as the band comes up, I want to ask you two questions. And I want to ask you this because sometimes we, we listen to teaching and sometimes in that teaching, this is, this is typically what goes on in our mind and what goes in, it's what goes on in my mind unless I really think about it is the normal reaction I make to a sermon or a teaching is, did I think that was good or did I think that was bad, right? It's like going to a movie. I go to the movie and I look at this. I was like, eh, is this good or bad? Eh, it was okay, right? And as pastors, we know it was okay as most of the time. Like not everyone's a home run and we understand that. But 
I think how Jesus would want me to respond and us to respond would be, Jesus, what did you point out to me? And so I want you to ask yourself that question. What did Jesus point out to you?